Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, once again, and friends. I, I hope that you all are doing well. I'm so glad that you are, are, are here this morning. I want to uh, first uh, start out and say happy Mother's Day to, to all of our, our mothers here this morning. I hope that you have a, a wonderful day um, this morning. Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12? We have a lot to do this, this morning. I had a lot on my brain this week when it comes to this, and so uh, we have a, a lot to, to do. We're going to begin reading in verse 29 in, in just a moment. Uh, but as you turn there, let me just say just a few words that, uh, as I've said, chapter 12 uh, is, is one of the most important chapters in on the Bible. It's not the most important, right, but it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. We know that it, the, the Passover has been, has been given and highlighted to, to Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all of those things that's rep- represented in those. We've spent several weeks now uh, going on all of those. In particular, its importance is, is to, to bring it to their children, to tell their children, and to pass it down from generation to generation. But this morning, as we are in chapter 12, at verse 29 and so forth, we have now come to the 10th plague, the 10th and final plague. Now, we've introduced, the Lord introduced the 10th and final plague back in in chapter 11, but now the time has come. Now the time has come. The final plague is here, and as we have read and heard The destroyer is here to kill all of the firstborn. It's nighttime in Egypt. Remember, they were to slaughter the lambs at twilight, celebrate the feast, and then at midnight, the destroyer would come. So it's night. All of Israel is in their homes. Remember, they were told, stay in your homes in Goshen. They had their their doorposts painted, their lintels painted with the blood of a lamb. It's probably by now just starting to dry and turn into that dark brown. The meals have been eaten and put away. The bitter herbs have been eaten. The remains of the lamb have already been burnt up in the fire because nothing was to be left. And now they're waiting. It's a waiting game. Will the Lord actually come? How bad will this really be? How, how bad will this, will this really be? Are we, are we just all dressed up, still with our shoes on, our belts on, and our robes on for for nothing? Are we just all dressed up with nowhere to go? And some might even wondered, is the blood on the door really going to be enough? Would it be sufficient? And so I, I state these in, in such a way, and maybe even being a little dramatic, because I hope in some way you can imagine the type of trepidation and fear 
and anxiety and doubt that must have been going through their minds that very long night. I'm sure there were a lot of mamas that night holding their firstborn babies pretty tight. Will God keep his promise? And we look at chapter 12, verse 29. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat at his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose in the night, and he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and Bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of, of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it was night, and it was a night of watching by the Lord. To bring them out of the land of Egypt so that this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. And so like the previous plagues, the Lord has done what he said he was going to do. And with all the buildup of this plague from chapter 11 through now all, almost all the way through, chapter 12, there is nothing anticlimactic at all. The, it may be a, a short description, and we may be spared the gory details, but we have enough for us to know and to imagine on how horrific and terrible that this must have been. 
We, we don't hear about the green mist that's you know, descending upon the land that's depicted in the movies that moves throughout the, the houses or the, the angel of the Lord descending. We don't, we don't see or hear any of that. We don't hear any of those details. But what we do see and what we should understand at the beginning of this text is that this text reads as a night of sheer terror. I don't know if you've ever been in a public place before and, and where you're at this public place and then all of a sudden you hear a woman shriekingly scream. At first your mind is like, what was what is going on? And then all of a sudden you begin to catch the details and the information on what's happening. And it could be a, a numerous amount of things, right? Generally it's something bad. But could you imagine this night where everyone in Egypt was crying out in terror. And what they learned the hard way that it is a fearful thing to fall into hands of the living God. Back in chapter 4. When the Lord met Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses to tell Pharaoh. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. If you kill my firstborn son, Israel, I will kill your firstborn son. Now back to chapter 12. This is a hard text. We've, we've, we talked about it all the way back in chapter 11, that this is a hard text. And we're, we're meant to feel, like I said back then, we're meant to feel the, the difficulty of this text. Because the Lord is bringing down just a piece, and this is just a piece of it. Just a piece of, of, of judgment upon them. And we're meant to feel it because, because this is his righteous judgment and righteous wrath and holiness is difficult for sinners to comprehend. It's hard for us to grasp the weight of our guilt before a holy and righteous Lord, especially without Jesus Christ. But there is a whole other part of this passage, isn't there? And certainly there's a massive part of the judgment of God on Egypt, but there's a whole other part of this passage, and that is the Lord's deliverance of his people. And they're like standing in juxtaposition of one another, aren't they? Massively standing there. Horrific, holy judgment on one side, and glorious majestic, loving mercy. You see that? If you have an ESV, there's even a break in the text there that says the tenth plague and then the exodus. English Puritan John Newton. Probably, you probably know him as the author of probably the most famous song ever written. And, and, I, and I, I dare you to find one that's greater known and well-known throughout the world and throughout history than this one, than Amazing Grace. 
before John Newton was a hymn writer, and before he was a pastor and writer and Puritan, John Newton was a sailor. And as a sailor, he took part in the transcontinental, transatlantic, excuse me, slave trade. He was, by his own words, a sinner among sinners, as stereotypically sailors would be. And numerous times at sea, there were times that uh, that John would say, John Newton would say that he should have been killed. A pretty dangerous job, right? Being a sailor back in the 1700s. And in particular, there was, there was one storm that came upon them, and it was the kind of storm that they knew should have killed them and wiped them out and sunk the ship and killed every one of them. But somehow, as, as John noted, they found harbor. They found land and were able to be delivered once again from a sure death. And it was at that moment that, that he began to ask the question, why? Am I just that lucky? And, and he can... And becoming a Christian, he can look back and he can see then how the Lord was working in his life. And he began to, to see God's providence at that moment. He began to see God's providence and his deliverance from certain death time and time again throughout the years, even despite his sinful living. And when he began to see God's deliverance, that had a profound effect on him as he began to take an account of his life, an account of his sin. And he began to realize that deliverance was coming, and it did. Deliverance came to, to John Newton through the gospel of Jesus Christ that radically changed the heart and life of this sailor and hum to a very humble man who penned, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And of course, John Newton was, was known for, for, for more than just writing that particular song. But it was never less than that as a sinner who has been delivered from darkness to light by the blood of Jesus Christ. Israel saw the deliverance of the Lord coming, a salvation through judgment. But before we get to deliverance again, let's go back to judgment. Again, this is that, that dark night that brought about the weeping and wailing of people that could be heard throughout the land. Verse 29 very concisely says that it was the, the Lord, right? God is not a, a, afraid or ashamed to show this is what he's doing. He struck down all the firstborn in the, in the land and all the people of the livestock. Even Pharaoh's own house was not spared. There was not a one. From the, from the highest of the class to the lowest of the classes, all were struck down and killed. God did not even spare Egypt's own 
uh, uh, son, uh, Pharaoh's own son, who was a god to Egypt. In fact, this is what it says in verse 30. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Oh, the carnage. And what was the outcome? The outcome was just as the Lord told them. The man who said, I will never see your face again, says, bring me Moses and Aaron. And they immediately were summoned to Pharaoh in, in verse 31, and he tells them to go. Take your people, everything, all your flocks, all your animals, all your children, and leave and go and serve. Go and worship the Lord. So there it is. Right? We've, we've come up to this moment now, right? Where we have spent weeks and weeks and months and months in leading up to this and the ten plagues. Freedom and deliverance from Egypt has come. And as the text turns in verse 33, they begin to find out that there is some problems. And the problems are some of the, the logistical issues that comes from getting these people out. As well as the problem, if one thing that they learn is that Pharaoh is a liar. And he will change his mind. Therefore, as we have been learning about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you will have no time for that. Trust me. Here it is. And you can, you can almost see it in the text. I mean, they're just like grabbing things. They're sticking their kneading bowls underneath their shirts. And they're trying to get everything they can in haste to get out. They got their dough in there. Like, oh, well, there's no, we can't put the leaven in no time. We just got to cook it as we go. Right? So very practically, they got to experience what God is telling them. That this is what they're going to observe for generation upon generation forever and ever. And the Egyptians, to say the least, enthusiastically does what? They, they, they send them out. And why? Because they knew the Lord was with them. Verse 33. In verses 35 through 36, just as he, is, he had said he would, the Lord gave his people favor. He gave his people favor, right? And they, and they took what? They took the gold. They took the jewelry. They took the silver. They took clothing. They plundered Egypt like, like victors. And whatever they asked for, they gave. Fine, if this is what it takes for you to go, go. In verses 37 through 39, we hear about the journey, where they went. They left out of Egypt from Ramses to Succoth, right? They had a huge group of 600,000 men at all, which means they could have had upwards of 2 million people or more. That is a huge task. I think 2 million would be very hard for us to fathom, wouldn't it? 2 million would be hard for us to fathom. And verse 38 tells us that there was a mixed multitude that went up with them, meaning that there were probably some other slaves of other, of other uh, uh, nationalities and races that joined them, as well as probably some Egyptians that believed and followed them out of the land. In verses 40 and 41, we get the timeline of 430 years spent in, uh, that Israel spent in Egypt until the Lord delivered them. And then in verse 42, we see something amazing. And, and that is that the Lord personally, you see this, it's like he, he personally oversaw this operation, didn't he? 
as he was sovereignly directing the whole thing. You remember back where it said, I think it was in chapter 11, where it said not even a dog would bark at you. I can see God doing that. He's watching over them. And meaning this, that all that the Lord had promised was coming to pass. And why? Why? Because it was his sovereign plan from the very beginning. Judgment and deliverance. Judgment and and deliverance was his sovereign plan from the very beginning, or to say it another way, and hear me on this, this is going to be the theme throughout the rest of the message, is that we see God's salvation through judgment for his glory. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to consider that massive, that is a massive theme. Salvation through judgment to the glory of God. I want us to consider this massive theme and and I want to show you that this isn't just a theme that's right here in Exodus but this is a massive biblical theme that flows throughout biblical history and how God is showing his glory to save his people through judgment and it starts all the way back at the very very beginning. The theme of salvation through judgment to the glory of God doesn't just start in Exodus, but it takes us all the way back to Genesis. Genesis opens up as a self-proclamation that God has made all things by his spoken word. That's awesome. He says, let there be dot, dot, dot. And it became. And in Genesis, we see that that the Lord is sovereign over all creation, over all the universe. He does as he pleases, just like we see in Exodus. Who is Egypt to the mighty strong arm of the Lord? Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made, was not made out of things that are visible. Let there be. And the process of, of creation shows his glory in it, doesn't it? In the first three days, we see God preparing the canvas that he's about to paint. In a part of that canvas, we see that, uh, that, that everything was formless and without void. And what he does in these first three days is he takes that and he makes it no longer formless and no longer formless does he right so in first day he creates the light and the darkness and he calls them day and night and the second day he he separates the waters from above and below and he calls it the heavens and in the third day he gathers the waters and the dry lands and he calls it the earth and the water So there it is. The canvas is is set. 
And then the next day, he dresses up and he beautifies and he paints this glorious picture. And what was once formless now has form. And what once was voidless is now going to have, uh, is now going to have matter. In verse uh, fourth day, he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he separates the day from the night. And the fifth day, he creates the living creatures and the, and the seas and the, or the, the living creatures of the sea and the birds of the, of the skies above. On the sixth day, the dry land is filled with all different kinds of animals. And then creation is crowned with the image of God in the creation of man. And then what did God say on that day? It is good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God created to the glory of his name gender, male and female. The Lord creates a helper for man because it's not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2.20. And she is called woman. We hear how man is created to, to cultivate, right? Man is created to cultivate and work and keep dominion over the garden. And woman is made to help man. And then the Lord places his image over them. And he gives them the task to, to do what? To make mothers, right? To make babies. To fill the earth. And to have dominion over the earth. And to subdue the earth. And the earth is covered with the glory of the Lord just as he's done in creation. So man is imaging the work of God in our dominion and subduing and filling the earth as God did in creation. And God puts his people in the garden, the Garden of Eden. And, and the garden sort of represents for us a future version, in a sense, of the tabernacle and the temples that we see later. The holy dwelling of a holy God. All is well and all is good until Genesis 3. Where Adam fails to keep the place where God dwells pure and allows, so listen, Adam allows the serpent to come in and tempt Eve to, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? The Lord had given them free access to, access to, to everything else in the garden. And, and it was very clear to them, right, to do not eat of this one tree or there will be the consequences of death. So there is nothing unfair, there is nothing deceptive about this. He is God, he sets the rules, and the rules were very clear. And yet they transgressed. Adam failed to keep dominion. He failed. And they transgressed the law of God. They failed to keep the word of God. And God kept his word though. Because death soon entered the land. Justice came. But also we see in with that justice, mercy. Now in the, the curse, the, the serpent, was he, he is the only one that is absolutely condemned, isn't he? He's absolutely condemned. 
He's the curse of all the, the animals living on their belly, eating of the dust. And ultimately, he will have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. The serpent, he's the one that's ultimately condemned. And yet, this serpent will strike at his heel. And this means that, yes, evil will soon one day be destroyed and defeated, yet, yet here he still is going to attempt to strike at the heel of the seed of the woman. And so already in this, this curse, we also call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, we see salvation through judgment. The serpent will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman. That's judgment. But the seed of the woman will do what? Will crush the seed of the, the head of the serpent. That's salvation. So we already see this theme, this grand theme, that's going to be played out through the rest of, of history. Salvation through judgment to the glory of God. And as we've just rewinded history just a little bit to Genesis, we see the same nature in God in Genesis. That it is his nature to give mercy to his people. Even in this curse, we see the mercy of God, right? Because all is not at all at loss, right? The seed of the woman will do what? Will crush the head of the serpent. Now, Adam and Eve, they didn't ask for this. They didn't deserve it. They are guilty and they deserved immediate death. Adam and Eve didn't go seek God. No, not one, seek after him. What did they do? They ran and they hid. They were guilty. They did not ask for mercy, nor did they take responsibility. Adam, what did you do? I didn't do it. Mercy only comes from the Lord. It is not something that we earn or deserve. And that comes, again, seen in that theme, that grand theme of salvation through judgment. But we see that justice does fall on them. And it is soon felt by them in all the world because sin has now entered the world. Death has now come into the world. Death is brought by the alienation now that they have with God. They have been removed from the garden. They have Their freedom, their innocence has been removed. And in a sense, look at this trade that was made. Freedom and innocence. Look, look what we got. We got shame and we got fear. What a terrible trade. And this brought death and spiritual death, and it changed everything. It distorted everything. It shattered everything. It broke everything. Even the, the God-given roles to, to man and to, to woman became very difficult. But yet again, salvation comes through judgment because the promise of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So through, listen, through the judgment of pain, through the toiling in work, through sin and relational difficulty, what does it say is going to happen? What's going to happen is the conquering seed will come. Salvation comes through judgment. We see also rise up this theme of conflict, right? That seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. 
And then it's played out immediately in the text. Between Cain and Abel, brothers. One brother murdering another brother. And as the text progresses, the conflict continues. And then there's Noah, Genesis 6 through, through 9, where collectively, collectively the world is seen as the seed of the serpent, where sin continues to increase in wickedness. As the text says, it covered the earth. But God, through Noah, who is a representative of the seed of the woman, he is saved in the ark from the waters of judgment. Again, salvation through judgment. And then in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord blesses Abram, Abraham. And those blessings that he gives to Abraham, they match toe-to-toe with the curses of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, right? I mean, look, Sarah is what? Sarah is Abraham's wife. She is barren. That's an outworking of the difficulty of childbearing, isn't it? But what is God's promise to her? Barrenness will be overcome, and Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm more excited than y'all on this. And then despite all of their relational difficulties, and that's like, to say it the least, between Abraham and Sarah, where Sarah tries to usurp everything and pass on her, uh, her servant to, to Abraham, and he's just the dolt and does what he has to do. And then he tries to sell his wife as, as his sister to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Right? That's, that's dysfunction in a marriage relationship. That's dysfunction, and that's, that's, that's sin. And despite that, what does God do? The enmity, right? That's Genesis 3. That's enmity between man and woman. Overcoming that, God does what? He grants the birth of the seed that's going to be passed. And this conflict continues in Egypt. The seed of the serpent, we can see in Cain, Pharaoh in Egypt, which from Genesis 12, not Exodus yet. The kings of the world in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ishmael, Abimelech, and the Philistines, Esau, the men of Shechem, the son, even the sons of Israel that throw Joseph into the well. And yet, even in all of that conflict, on all of this judgment, we still see the seed of the woman through Abraham and Sarah, through Isaac, through Lot through Melchizedek, Simeon, Levi, some of Israel, Jacob and Joseph. And throughout Genesis, we see God's justice, as he promised in Genesis 3, played out. It's played out with all of the sin and all of the destruction in Genesis. Like we've already mentioned, the barrenness of Sarah and Rebecca and, and Rachel the, the, the enmity that happens within these marriages, the, the usurping of, of women of their husbands, the marital problems, the husbands who are, who are abusive to their wives, the death and childbearing, the, the sexual dysfunction in Genesis, right? The slavery, the murder, the treachery, the lying, and on and on it goes. All signs in the conflict of the justice and judgment of God from Genesis chapter 3. And yet, as I have said, listen, if all of that, 
there is this backdrop of darkness. And in this backdrop of darkness, there's the, just the absolute horror of man, man's sin. Read that in Genesis. Spend some time, you'll see it. The absolute horror of man's sin. But even there, we still see what? We still see God's ultimate purpose to display his mercy to his people. Salvation through judgment. Without justice, listen to me, without justice, mercy is meaningless. And so throughout Genesis, the Lord, through judgment, he still is overcomes those relational difficulties of the curse, the difficulties of, of childbearing. It is the, the Lord, yes, who gave the curse, yet it is also the Lord who mercifully answers the prayers of those who are his people. In Genesis 22, right, we see the, the beautiful picture, we see this beautifully pictured display of salvation through judgment. And God does this very important, importantly for us to see this. And as he tells Abraham to do what? He tells Abraham to take now this child of promise, this seed of the woman that they've been waiting for, for years and years and decades and decades, to take his son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham believes God. He believes God that God's going to provide a sacrifice. You see that. God's going to provide a sacrifice for, uh, for him, but yet he is still obedient. He's still obedient, and he still intends on killing his son. And as you know the story, in the last moment, the Lord does provide. He provides a, a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. And so again, what is this picturing? Salvation through judgment to the glory of God who is merciful to provide what? A substitute. But the story is not over. That's just Genesis and Exodus. So in the backdrop of all the curses and sin that just flow throughout Exodus, and the judgment that we find the Lord, we see him glorify himself and still saving his people through judgment. The promise is made in Genesis 3, then later to Abraham, and that, that, they would, that they would be, what, a great nation. See in Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And you remember that when they came to Egypt, they came to Egypt, why? They came to Egypt for refuge. Refuge from famine. Again, a curse on the land. A curse on the land, yet the Lord provided, right? He provides for his people. He saves his people by, by preserving Joseph, who his brothers throw into the well. And Joseph is raised up as, as, a, as a second almost in all of Egypt to save God's people. And when they came to Egypt, there was only 70 of them. And from the beginning of Adam where murder, death, division, and judgment like, like the flood, we saw the confusion of the Tower of the Babel, the charge to be fruitful and multiply was still inherited to God's people. And so when we get to, to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we can understand the significance when it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God was keeping his promises to his people, particularly his promise to Abraham to make them a great nation despite what's about to unfold, what we already know, in Exodus. 
that a new king takes over the throne. And this new king doesn't know Joseph. And this new king doesn't know the Lord. This king of Egypt, listen, who, who literally, I kid you not, and this takes us all the way back to Genesis, who, I kid you not, literally wears a crown of a serpent on his head. He is literally a representation of the seed of the serpent. I mean, we're we're meant to understand that he is a descendant of his father, the devil, who is a murderer from the beginning. That's what we're meant to see in this dude. He demands the murder of all the male seeds of the woman. He fails on that. So he orders all the newborn baby Hebrew baby boys to be thrown into the river and to be drowned and killed. I mean, just as a side note here, isn't it interesting how those who want to accuse God, take like passages like Exodus chapter 12 and others, who want to accuse God of being immoral and God of being wrong for judging a nation like this and sending plagues upon Egypt, they're so short-sighted and they totally forget that they were throwing babies in a river. Makes you wonder what kind of judgment will come to us. And yet... I fear that it is the same people who espouse for such things who accuse God of such evil. And yet through all that, through all of that in Exodus, the Lord, what? He, he providentially provides, doesn't he? And he preserves the life of this one baby, Moses. And Moses is put into what? That little basket, that little ark. And sent down river. You're talking about a worried mama that day. And yet she trusts in the Lord. And God providentially preserves his life. And God does what? He takes that baby and he plants him right into the house of Pharaoh. Where the daughter of Pharaoh raises Moses as his own. And actually calls upon Moses' mother to be his nurse. Ha! I mean, you're, you're kind of, even in tragedy, we're supposed to kind of laugh at that and say, yeah, the plans of man, fools. And so as we, we move forward in Exodus and Egypt and slaves, they oppress God's people for, for hundreds of years. We see the text this morning, 430 years. And yet despite all of that, they continue to multiply and, and grow as evidence in our passage this morning. 600,000 men leave Egypt. And why does God deliver his people? The text tells us, chapter 6, verse 7, that they will know that he is the Lord. The Lord judges Egypt so that he, so that they will know that he is the Lord. The Lord protects and makes a distinction of his people from the plagues and wants Pharaoh to know that I'm making a distinction between my people and your people because there is no one like me. I want you to see my power. And the whole earth is to know his name. And he is judging them for his glory. Chapter 9, verse 16. And he is going to do whatever it takes. And we've seen that throughout the narrative of the ten plagues. And the Lord over and over again tells us that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? To show his glory. 
and his glory will be told from generation to generation that they may know that he is Yahweh, that he is I am that I am. Chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Salvation through judgment is about the glory of God. So all the way from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, it is all about the glory of God. Now, several weeks of covering this, we've, we've dealt with the hard difficulty of, of, of Pharaoh's heart and the extensive, I don't want to cover it extensively, we've already done that. But what was God just, though? I'm going to ask this question. Was God just in doing what he did to Pharaoh and judging Egypt? And the answer to that question, I think the Bible sums it up very clear, particularly in Romans chapter 1, that all human beings owe the creator thanks, glory, and praise. And yet we know from Romans chapter 3 that no one is successful in doing that. All fall short to the glory of God. And so we must understand this, that the unspeakable evil is the failure to honor God and therefore deserves the severity and the judgment of God. The Lord does not owe anyone mercy but only justice. And to sin against an infinitely holy God calls, the, the calls for a punishment that fits the crime. If God does not judge according to his own holiness, then he is not acting as God, and he's showing little regard for himself and for his own creation. And so in the, including the tenth plague here, God is acting according to his great worth and his holy and righteousness. But we also must see that he shows his love for his people by giving mercy to them, just like he has from the very beginning. And so if God is just in judging the sins of Egypt, and if God is just in judging the sins of all mankind, is God's mercy to Israel or God's mercy to his elect, is that just? Israel is guilty for their sins. We are guilty for our sins. Israel failed to honor God, even as Egypt failed to honor God and give glory to God. We have failed to give glory and honor to God. So how could God be just to show them mercy and show us mercy? Well, do you remember back in Genesis chapter 22? When God promised Abraham what? When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and when he told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, at that moment there was, there was no ram provided. He, he was obedient. But at the last moment, God provided the ram. And the principle that is started there is the principle that lasts even for us as the church, and that is the principle of the substitute was set forth. Which points us forward to Exodus chapter 12. Because you remember, what does the Lord have his people paint on the doorposts? The blood of the lamb. And just as in our text this morning, that, that terrifying moment of, of, of that, the, the terrifying moment of God's judgment that falls upon Egypt, and the terror and horror that is felt of the screaming people in, in Egypt, can you imagine the mercy and love that is felt by God's people? to be passed over because of the blood of the Lamb. So those that believed by faith did what? They believed the promise of the Lord. They believed that the, the Lamb would, would satisfy, in a sense, where the Lord would pass over them. 
and that God would save them from judgment. Salvation through judgment. By faith and believing in God's word. And so it's very clear in Exodus, even in, particularly in chapter 12, of God's intent to save his people from judgment on Egypt. And that judgment was severe. Make no, make no mistake in that. He forces them to see that he, not their gods, is the Lord. And he wants Egypt to know, Israel to know. He wants all the earth to know that he is Yahweh. And he is simultaneously just and he is simultaneously merciful and loving. He, so here in Exodus, leading to this pinnacle moment here in chapter 12, this moment of judgment and deliverance, the Lord saves his people by judging their enemies and saving his people through judgment by a substitute. So this glorious theme that we see that God was going to do all the way back in the very beginning is being played out all the way through all the way through Exodus, through this judgment, to the glory of his name. It spikes here in Genesis or Exodus chapter 12, but what we're going to see later in the New Testament is that this theme of salvation through, Genesis, or through, salvation through judgment is going to just peak in the New Testament. So the grand theme doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It moves, for, it moves forward all the way into the, the New Testament. Those, those ancient themes, when they were just shadows and vague images marred by, by sin and fractured and by a fractured world for thousands of years, they now become clear and they're no longer hidden because as we see from the text, tells us at the right time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation, right? So we celebrate on Christmas. When, when God takes on flesh, we understand that this is the, this, the seed of the woman, capital T, capital H, capital E, the seed of the woman, who, who has come to crush the head of the serpent. And so the Gospel of John lets us in what he's about to do and why he's going to do it. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right? So hold on. Glorified. John chapter 12, 27 through 28. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The same thing when we hear Jesus saying in his farewell to the disciples in chapter 13, he says, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And so what is, where is all of this glory going to take place? What is this hour, John 17, and the high priestly player, Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son of Man may glorify you. And we know that this hour, this time, the moment in which God has sent His Son, this moment in which the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, is the cross. The cross is where the Father and the Son are glorified. 
So just like in Genesis and Exodus with judgment and sin and the curse that just reigns through, how does that make any sense to us of how God is going to save his people and he's going to bring salvation through such judgment? How is God going to be glorified through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross? How is Jesus going to be glorified by dying a death on the cross that a sinner deserves? Well, I'm glad you asked, because to answer that question, we turn to Scripture. And praise God for the unity of Scripture, because this is how we understand these things. Romans chapter 3, again. Verse 25 through 26, you know these verses very well, I'm sure. It says, but God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the, just, the justifier and the one who has faith in Jesus. God did what? God put his son forward. Like in Exodus, the head of the household would go and pick a lamb and take that lamb and put it forward to be what? The propitiation. So God sent his son to be a ransom, to be a substitute, to propitiate. Which means, which means this, that means to be this lamb, this blood that was shed on the cross that would satisfy the wrath of God. So the demands of judgment, the demands of judgment for salvation would be satisfied through the blood of the lamb. And this forgiveness of Jesus Christ is what? Is to be received by faith. Is to be received by faith. And by the way, there's no discontinuity in this from Exodus 12. They believed God's word by faith. Not because of circumcision, not because of any of that. Because God said, do this, and you'll be delivered. And they believed. God showed his righteousness, because prior to the cross, as it says here, it would seem as if he passed over all these sins, and that would be unjust for him to do. But no, it says Jesus was put forward, put forth to die on the cross, and so that the Lord can do what? He can justly justify the ungodly people who have faith in Jesus. And this is why God is glorified, because it demonstrates his perfect justice and holiness and yet it further glorifies him because of the great cost in making a way to to up uh, to preserve his justice and his mercy doesn't it look at the lengths he went and jesus is glorified because he is the pure and spotless lamb who didn't account equality with god as something to be grasped but that he gave it up and he gave his life as a ransom for many. That he laid down his life, as he tells us, for his friends. And so when we use the phrase, God's glory, 
We are not only to think about his righteousness and holiness and his vindication against our enemies and his enemies, but we should also think about his salvation, about our salvation, excuse me, because he is not only just, but he is also the justifier. And God is glorified at the cross because there is where salvation has come, ultimately through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment at the cross. Jesus took our judgment. He became our judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin. He became our, the embodiment of the judgment that was a part of the curse. All of your enmity, all of your pride, all of your lust, all of your unfaithfulness, all of your, your cursings and all of your anger and all of your deceitfulness, all of these things, he became all of these things that plague us of the curse, the judgment that God put on us, he became. He became. So that we can become the righteousness, the salvation of God. When I, when I was thinking of this, this week, my mind was just, just blown by this. Blown. I mean, to the glory of God that he would do this. He became our judgment that through him we would be delivered. So that we would be hastily running out of Egypt going, I'm free! You remember that day when you were set free? Man, I got to get out of this place. This place is wretched. We were delivered like them in such a greater way from our sin and from our death. And just like the Lord told us in Genesis that the, by the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord delivered his people safely out of Egypt to worship him to delight in him in eternal salvation, brothers and sisters, has been provided to us through judgment because of the Lamb of God. Now, I wanted to teach this way this morning because some of y'all may be going, I don't understand where this comes from. And I wanted to teach this, reason, this to you for two things, and very simply as we close. And the first thing is I want you to understand this, that the Bible is an incredible piece of work. It is an amazing work of God and a miracle of God. If you were able to follow along, and if you weren't, you can listen later. If you were able to follow along, I hope you could see that the, the continuity of the Bible is in incredible it's amazing 
Because we see the, the same way, right? Especially the Lord who has brought about salvation. He brought about salvation as of, of his people, the salvation of us. It didn't just start in the Gospels. It didn't just start in Exodus, but rather it was started all the way back in, in Genesis that the Lord has always been working to bring about our salvation through judgment to the glory of his name. And that theme gloriously runs its way all the way through the Bible, and you will see it in every story. You will see it in every poem, in every prophecy. And that, that theme runs all the way through the Bible, and by the way, even in the consummation, when Christ comes again. And when we receive our final salvation, what will Jesus bring when he comes back? Judgment. Salvation through judgment. And secondly, I want you, those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, to marvel at the majesty, the wonder, the holiness, the righteousness, the grace, the mercy, and the glory of our sovereign Lord who saved his people, who saved you. Spend some time marveling on his eternal mysteries and purposes, God's eternal plan to save his elect for his glory. So that you, as John Newton penned, could say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So that now you are his people. We are his church. Soli Deo Gloria. And all God's people said,